Please stand as we look to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee once again this evening and we confess to Thee our abject need of Thy help. We think, Lord, of these great and mighty truths that lie before us on the pages of Scripture. And though we lament, O Lord, at how unworthy we are to handle such a subject as this. Oh, how high it is above us, O Lord. How great and how mighty is the truth of Scripture. But, O Lord, we look to Thee now, and confessing our emptiness and our unworthiness, we pray, O God, that Thou would grant the help of Thy Spirit, that Thou would come and cause there to be a solemnity over our gathering even now. We pray, O God, that every weary eye would be cast out from our midst, that every, every little bit of drowsiness would be dissipated from us. That, O oh Lord, we would be given not only a physical and mental alertness, but spiritually we would be even now on the edge of our seats, waiting, anticipating a word from the Lord. We ask thee, O oh Lord, on behalf of every soul gathered, of every one of thy children, we pray that thou would bless their hearts, that thou would encourage them in this pilgrimage here below, as all of the wickedness of the world would press in upon them, as their own deceitful hearts would seek to trip them up, as the devil would lay snares for them and accuse them before thee. O Lord, we pray that thou would be on to them all that they would need, that thou would fortify thy people against sin, against wickedness, against worldliness, against unbelief. <clears throat> Sanctify them, we pray. And for any, O Lord, in our gathering that know not Christ as their own and personal Saviour, then we pray, O God, that this evening would be for them as though they were the only person here. That they would feel the weight of their sin. And they would see the splendor and the glory of the Lamb of God that was slain for, for the sin of the sinner. And they would cast themselves at thy feet for mercy and they would cry out for salvation. O oh, visit us, we pray. Grant the liberty of the Spirit of God in the proclamation of gospel truth. Sanctify the saint and save the lost. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're turning this evening to the first chapter of Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and we will be taking as our text this evening the verses from 7 to 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7 And to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels 
in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. <coughs> Whenever we think of the word salvation today and all that salvation means, we tend perhaps in our minds to be drawn towards the conversion of the sinner. That's what takes the prominent place in our minds and in our attention. And maybe it's because in our experience here below, the conversion of the sinner is the outward, the visible effect of the salvation of the sinner. Conversion is the thing that we can see. It's the evidence of it, the first evidence of what we call salvation. We have no problem in understanding salvation to include the coming of Christ into this world as a man to live. And to die for his people. To redeem them. So that they may be saved. Yet as we continue living as saved sinners here in this life. There is still in our experience much heartache. There is much misery. There is affliction. Even today living in this ungodly society despite our many freedoms. We are experiencing, to an extent at least, much persecution as the people of God. Well, this was the experience in particular for the people in Thessalonica. The city itself, although of small beginnings, had by the time of Paul the Apostle become a major central metropolis in Macedonia, having supported Octavius in the war. They were granted the status of being a free city by the founder of the Roman Empire. With such high worldly credentials then, it is perhaps not surprising that the Apostle Paul suffered severe persecution during his missionary activity in the city. With such worldly ease and prosperity and all the pleasures that being a free city of Rome had to offer, the preaching of Christ crucified was not exactly welcome. In Acts 17 we read of the uproar that was caused by Paul's preaching and how when the people of that place came baiting for Paul's blood but couldn't find him, well, they turned on the locals who had been associated with him. People to whom Paul now writes. This persecution appears to have been continuing and a continuing state of affairs for the church there. Paul references it himself here at the beginning of this chapter in verse 4. He speaks of the persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. For the believers in Thessalonica then, the triumph of salvation, it meant to them a good deal more than their conversion, simply their conversion in this life. <coughs> For them, salvation, although beginning for them in their experience with their conversion in this life, salvation in all of its fullness was a thing yet to come. 
It is with this coming salvation, this final completion of their salvation, that Paul seeks in this letter to comfort them in their trials and in their sufferings in this life. Coming then to our text this evening, we meet with the final act in the work of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. That day in which he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. That day in which he will perfect that salvation which he has undertaken to bring to his people. Our title then, as we consider these glorious verses, with God's help tonight, is perfected salvation. Notice, firstly, in verse 7, we have the return of the Saviour. We read there, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. As Paul opens up this comforting doctrine for the people of God, he begins with this clear declaration, Jesus Christ will come again. He is saying that there will be a point in time in which the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who lived a life of obedience, the one who died a penal death in the place of the sinner, the one who rose again triumphantly from the dead, and the one who ascended up into heaven to reign over his kingdom, that Jesus Christ, that same one, the same one that we have been speaking of over these last five weeks, that Christ will come again. Notice what we're told about that coming in our text. We see firstly that the return of the Saviour will be a revealing. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed. The word just literally means an uncovering, a laying bare. It's commonly used in a metaphorical sense in Scripture of the revelation of heavenly truth, of the communication from God to man. We can call our Bibles the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the sense in which it is used here is physical. It's not metaphorical. There will be quite literally a revealing of Jesus Christ in that day. The importance in this language is to note that the Lord Jesus Christ, in a sense, is already here. He is here as the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And being God, he possesses all of the attributes, all of the possessions, of the perfections of God. And that means that he knows all things. And it means that he has all power. But it also means that he is omnipresent. He is present in all places all of the time as the second person of the Holy Trinity. In that sense then, he is here now. He is here with us. Did he not say himself that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He is here tonight. But the return of Jesus Christ in that day, it will be an uncovering of what is already there. Now see the significance of this tonight. For the believer, 
in the gathering tonight, you know that Christ is here now. You know of his presence. You know that he is ever present. You have no doubts of that. But you know it tonight by faith. You don't know it because you can see him. You don't know it because you can handle him, as the Apostle John put it, as we thought of last week. You know it by faith. The point here then is that then, on that day, you will know it by sight. And so will the rest of the world with you, believers and unbelievers. In Revelation 1 verse 7, we read it like this. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. That's these eyes, friends, not the eye of faith. This word revealed, it also gives us an impression of something that will happen suddenly, like a cover being pulled back. It will happen at a single point in time, not a gradual unveiling, but a complete and an instant revelation. It's referred to by Paul as a day. In Romans 2 verse 5, he calls it the day of wrath and revelation. The day of revelation. Peter refers to it as the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we see the suddenness of it taught by the Lord distinctly in Matthew 24. Where Christ says of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, no not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And he goes on in that passage in Matthew 24, 36 to 41. He goes on to compare the coming of the Lord in that day like the coming of the flood in the days of Noah. The suddenness is not, be, it's not because it's without warning, but because the warnings were unheeded. He said of the people in that day of, of Noah's day that they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. They sound like familiar days, do they not? But we see also that the return of the Saviour will be a descending. We read that he will come, he will be revealed from heaven. This is an important point because there are those who teach that Christ's second coming will be purely spiritual. There are those who teach that it has already <laughs> happened. But the clear teaching of scripture is that the return of Christ will be personal, it will be physical, it will be visible for all to see. We see it taught expressly in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. There Christ had just ascended bodily into heaven. His human body had just gone up into heaven. We read there that it had been received by a cloud. He hadn't simply vanished out of sight like a spirit. His body had been concealed from view. No vanishing. There was a visible, physical, bodily ascension of the person, Jesus Christ, into heaven. And then we read that there were two angels who appeared. They appeared because they had no human body. But they appeared. And this is what they said. They said, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. 
In other words, it will be the same person, body and soul, the God-man, who will descend from the same heaven into which he ascended. He'll come in the same way. In other words, he will come into view. Those obscuring clouds that took him out of sight will break and we will see him coming. He will be revealed from heaven. Paul had already taught this in the first letter to the Thessalonians uh, back in chapter 4 verse 16 of the first epistle. He says there the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. This return then will be no silent affair. It will not be some spiritual vision. It won't be some angelic being. No, the Saviour himself, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will return in his full humanity and in his full deity and it will be the unveiling of the already present Son of God and it will be visible for all to see but also the return of the Saviour will be glorious we read these words that he's going to come he's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire now what a contrast is noted here when we compare it to Christ's first coming. When he first came, he came alone. He came vulnerable as a babe. He was born as an infant in a lowly condition. When Christ came to this world as the sin bearer, he came in dependence on his own human mother for sustenance. When he came, he was exposed to persecution and trial. He suffered all of the afflictions and all of the weaknesses of our humanity without sin. Ah, he came that first time in this state of humiliation. We saw this last week, how that it culminated in that cursed death of the cross. Suffering that wrath of God for sins that were not his own. Falling down on his head. We saw how that humiliation reached its depth in the grave. And at that point in the grave, the reversal began. The humiliation had run its course. And the reversal began. And we saw the first step of his exaltation was his rising again from the dead. Yet even then, even when he had risen from the dead... And when he had walked around following the resurrection, appearing to all those people that we thought of last week, there was very little glory. There was very little recognition that he was the king of kings. And then he ascended up to heaven and he took up his place at the right hand of the Father. Yet even there, now reigning from heaven, he gains little recognition here below that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But when he returns again, this is the highest point of his exaltation. Where the grave was the lowest, his return shall be the highest. This is the greatest glory. This is his ultimate triumph. 
in all of his glory and all of his splendor, the Son of God will come again. And then he is revealed to be the judge of all the earth. Then all his enemies have been put under his feet. The reference in the text to mighty angels and flaming fire. They're speaking of his power and of his glory. It's not the angels that are mighty. And notice this carefully. The angels are the symbols of the might of Jesus. If you have a margin in your Bible, you'll see there a literal translation, which is this. He comes with the angels of his power. The angels show him to be powerful. He is the one that is mighty. That is why he has this host of angels. And the flaming fire, though it is rightly associated with judgment and the judgment spoken of in verse 8, really the connection is to the splendor of his revelation, the brightness of it. It cannot be missed, this flaming fire. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of that burning bush. The children in the Sabbath school this afternoon were thinking of the burning bush. It speaks of the splendor of the Lord. Daniel spoke of it. In Daniel 7 verse 9, speaking of a vision that took in all of this work of Christ. It took in his ascension. It took in his return again. And there Daniel saw that his throne was like the fiery flame. This fiery flame, it's the, it's the flame of his glory. It's not the flames of hell that are in view. The return of the Saviour then will be a glorious return. Now for the believer this evening in our gathering, this return is a day of triumph, a day that has been long awaited by you. A day of glory, a day of joy, a day of exaltation like you have never known before. This day marks the terminus of all of the heartache, of all of the pain and the suffering that you undergo in this life. This is the ultimate end of all that God has promised you in Christ Jesus. All of the mockers will be silenced. Faith in Jesus Christ will be vindicated and the people of God will be perfected in their salvation. Then will your salvation be complete. Oh, what a glorious day. In that day begins our eternity of glorifying Christ, of basking in his glory, our eternal rest. But for the sinner in the gathering. There's a warning in these words. No matter the outward appearances of our day, no matter what you might think of the cause of Christ today, no matter what you might think of God's people and their faith in Christ, their faith in an unseen Christ, you need to see from this that Christ is not failing. The truth of his splendor and the truth of his glory is here now, but it's hidden from your view. On that day it will be revealed.
You might say, I see no evidence of it. Well, that's what they said in the days of the Apostle Peter. They said, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You see what they were saying there? They're saying what you're thinking in your heart now. I'm looking around this world. I'm looking at the small church. I'm looking at them having all the afflictions in this life that they undergo. And none of the pleasures of sin. And I don't see any splendor. And I don't see any glory of any arisen saviour. My friends, that's the very point. Because you don't see it, on that day it will be revealed. If you could see it, there would be no revelation to come. You think that because there are no outward evidences, perhaps you're not completely given over to a disbelief in God, but maybe you convince yourself that because there's no sign of his coming, everything carries on as it was before. Year after year, it's all the same. You sin and you think you get away with it. And maybe you plan one day to change your mind. Maybe you imagine that there is some day coming when you'll, yes, then I'll, com I'll confess faith. I'll profess faith in Jesus Christ. I'll confess my sins. I'll repent. Yes, maybe then. Maybe you plan to believe before he comes. But the reality for you today is this. If you are in your sins now, then you are blinded to the time of his coming. For you, this day will come suddenly. There will be no warning other than the warnings you have already received. My friend, you're receiving your warning now. Take this as your warning. Perhaps this is your final warning. There will be no other warning given than the warning that is in these pages of Scripture. And for you, the message from this passage is this, to repent of your sins and to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who is now here and reigning in all his splendor and glory in heaven. And you need to apprehend that with the eye of faith. His coming will be personal. His coming will be physical. His coming will be sudden and visible. It will be glorious and triumphant. But my friends, his coming will be final. So we see the return of the Savior. But that inevitably brings us to see in the second place. The retribution of the sinner. In verses 8 and 9 we read this. Taking vengeance on them that know not God. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. From the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. This aspect of the return of Christ. This part of the. The teaching of this perfecting of salvation, it is an incredibly uncomfortable doctrine. But it's the truth of God. When Jesus Christ returns, he comes as the judge of all the earth. 
And Paul writes to Timothy that Christ will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And the reference there to the quick and the dead, it simply means those who are alive on that day and those who died before that day raised again to face him. It calls to mind that implication of the resurrection that we considered. That all of mankind will be resurrected in that last day. Every single person that ever lived in all ages, in all places, all souls reunited with their bodies. Your body and soul reunited and standing in front of Christ the judge. What a fearful convocation that will be. All standing in the immediate presence of the glorified King of Kings. That's a day of what Paul calls in verse 5 the righteous judgment of God. A day of crisis. A day of separation between sheep and goats, between believer and unbeliever. And for the sinner, for the unbeliever, a day of retribution. And here's the retribution that we read of in our text. We see firstly the indiscriminate justice of God. Taking vengeance on them that know not God and on them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is meant here is that when Christ comes he will mete out what is deserved. That's what the words mean. The idea of vengeance. It's, it's not that vindictive malice that's common to us. It's not how man treats man. Not that kind of vengeance. No, this is the perfect application of divine justice. The sense is that Christ will distribute to all men the portion that is due to them. But that distribution will be entirely impartial. There will be no favours. There will be no exceptions. There are two categories here in this verse. There are them that know not God. And there are them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two categories of unbeliever. The latter is a reference to the unbelieving Jews. That class of people who enjoyed the immense privileges of having the very word of God. Of being guardians of that word. Of having the Saviour come from among their number. <coughs> of having been the visible manifestation of that covenant of grace in the Old Testament. They're described in Hebrews 10.26 as those that have received the knowledge of the truth. The recipients of the oracles of God in the Old Testament. That's who they were. The Apostle in Hebrews 10 goes on to speak of their judgment in these terms of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So we see in these words those who have been privileged with the gospel. There are some of you here tonight who have been privileged with the gospel. 
There are some of you here tonight who have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, as it's put here. You've been baptized into the church of Christ. You're a member of this visible church. A privileged people. Living under the constant preaching of the gospel. And yet as unbelievers in such a condition with such privileges suffering this retribution in our verse. But the other class of people are described as them that know not God. Now this is a reference to the Gentiles. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 5 we read of the Gentiles which know not God. In other words, those people who had no exposure to the true religion. Those who have never heard the gospel. Or those who have rejected it out of hand. Who haven't had the privileges that some of you have had. This is the category which is dealt with at length by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. If you're familiar with Romans 1, you will recognise that this category describes the society in which we now live. We are no longer living in a Christian society. We are living in a society that has rejected the gospel. And these people that are described, if you go back 200 years, they would have been called savages. But these people who are described here, in Romans chapter 1, they're spoken of as being ungodly and unrighteous, yet he describes them there as those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. How can such ungodly men, who have made no profession of knowing the true God, be said to hold the truth? What does Paul mean when he says that? Well, he describes it in these terms. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What fearful words. Those who reject the truth of God that is so obviously shining around them. Everywhere we look, we see evidence. We see the fingerprints of the creator of this universe. <coughs> and they reject the works of creation. And so God says, they are without excuse. We see then that the justice of God is shown here in the retribution of the sinner and it's indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. Every unbeliever in that day will suffer this retribution. But also we see in this verse, or in these verses, the isolation of the sinner's hell. In verse 9 we read, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So from considering who will have this retribution, we see now what this retribution involves. In short, it means the complete and the utter separation from God. From all that is God. From his people. From his righteousness. From the smile of his favour. The phrase to be punished from the presence of the Lord it means to be removed from before his face so the idea that is 
confronting us here this evening is this is speaking of the location of the sinner. Where the sinner will be after this judgment. They will be sent to a place which is separate from the face of the Lord. It's the very same idea that was seen in the judgment that Christ foretold. Whenever he would pronounce on that day those who claimed falsely to be his disciples and he described that day and the judgment in which he would say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Be gone from before my face. In another place. Jesus describes this day of retribution in a parable in these terms. He says, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This whole idea then of the nature of the punishment that is allotted to those who are sinners is that of a complete separation from the favorable presence of God. In other words, abandonment in hell. Many dislike any preaching that references hell. Friends, it's right in front of us. How can we be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not warn you? There is such a place. But notice this. See the similarities of what has just been described. See the similarities to that suffering of Christ that we considered here in this room a couple of weeks ago. <coughs> when we considered that Jesus Christ in his humanity as the sin bearer. That what he suffered was that abandonment of God's presence. What he suffered was this experience of the sinner's hell on behalf of his own people. Here we have it described from the other side. Here we see the isolation of the sinner's hell. Oh, to hear people joke about meeting up with their friends in hell. Oh, how despicable. There will be no meetings in hell. In that place of abandonment, in that place of darkness and torment, a place of isolation away from the presence of God. But then we see the infinite suffering of the lost sinner. Verse 9 has these solemn words, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Here we are met with the vast difference between the sinner's hell and the wrath that was suffered by Jesus Christ. <coughs> When he was a sin bearer of that wrath for his people. Christ suffered in his humanity. There's similarities, yes. He suffered as the eternal son of God. That's what's different. The suffering of the eternal son of God was of infinite worth. It was of eternal value. You see, sin is an infinite offense against the eternal holiness of God. Every sin is an infinite offence. And so it is that only an infinite retribution can ever hope to satisfy divine justice. And Jesus Christ paid the value of an infinite punishment. 
You see that child of God this evening? Your punishment in hell has been replaced by that infinite blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. But the sinner, the sinner is finite. So when it comes time to mete out the retribution for the lost sinner, then what is demanded is an infinite retribution, described here as everlasting destruction. The language used it speaks of the execution of a just sentence. So what is in view then here is this, in this retribution of the sinner, this infinite suffering of the lost sinner, what's in view is the paying of the penalty that is imposed on their guilt by way of the judicial sentence of God. It's not arbitrary. There's no malice in God. He judges your sin and he punishes you accordingly. It's infinitely fair. The sentence is just. It is no more and it is no less than what the guilty sinner deserves. It is a recompense. But it's an infinite recompense for an infinite offence. The sentence that was passed on Christ when he stood in the place of his people, when he stood in the place of those whose sins he was bearing, that was likewise a just sentence. And what we thought of when we looked at Christ's death on the cross, we saw that for the sinner there must be one. There must be one who will stand under the wrath of God for their sin. And there are only two possibilities. It will be the Son of God as a substitute for the sinner. Or it will be the sinner himself. Oh, what fearful words then for the sinner tonight. Fearful words, but yet, friends, this evening, these words are not preached in order to produce fear. We do not terrorize people into heaven. They're not held up vindictively. We don't glory in the eternal death of the sinner. We dread it. Oh, it fills us with dread to think of it. But these are the words of the living Saviour. These are the words of the resurrected, ascended, reigning Christ, the one who is reigning now and the one who will be revealed in that last day. And there can be no true handling of God's truth without bringing this truth before you tonight. If you are outside of Christ tonight, then this is the only valid expectation that you can have if you die in your sins. There are no other possibilities. If Christ comes and finds you still in your sin, there is no other expectation that you can have. There is no alternative justice. There is no remission. There is no early release, no parole. The justice of God demands a just recompense and that justice will be satisfied. And if Christ is not the one who bears your sin, then you will bear them alone. Let that run through your mind. It's Christ or it's you. Oh, sinner friend, the saving then flee to Christ for refuge. He is held out now. With every warning that you hear, he is held out to you. 
as the saviour, the only saviour from sin. As the one who bore the punishment of sin for the guilty sinner who trusts in him as their substitute. Trust him as your substitute. Finally this evening, and we'll close briefly with this, we see the rest of the saint. In the start of verse 7 and into verse 10, we read this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. In verse 10, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Oh, this is the great crowning doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, his return marks the perfecting of your salvation, the glorification of the saints. He speaks here of the saints and of them that believe. Those who are Christ's people are described as saints. And in that term, the emphasis is on what they are in Christ. They are saints. And the term draws attention to what has been done to them. It hasn't been done to them by a pope. Every child of God is a saint. Why are they a saint? Because they have been made holy. They have been set apart by God. If you're a saint tonight, if you're a child of God, you have been changed. Changed by God. That's what's meant by saints. They're also called believers. And by that word, the focus is on Christ as the object of your faith. But specifically, it speaks of persevering in that faith until the very end. These saints and these believers in view here then are those who, in that day when Christ comes again, are still believing. Those who are believing now and who will go on believing until the end. Because they are kept by Christ. Because their faith is not in their own belief. Their faith is in Christ Jesus as their substitute. They believe that he has done it all. That can never be undone. And they're believing, as Paul puts it here, because our testimony among you was believed. The saints, the believers, are those who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not facing this retribution in verse 8, it's because of this. It's because you have trusted in Christ for your eternal salvation. But he also speaks here of Christ being glorified and being admired in his saints and in them that believe. Now here, this is the view we're going to leave with this evening. Jesus Christ, the glorified Son of God, completing his mission as the mediator of the covenant of grace. There he stands in the midst of his saints, all gathered around him. All those who mar the glory have now been cast out from his presence. There is no sin. There is no tarnish. There is no interruption. And there in that uninterrupted splendor of the Lamb of God, it's reflected as it were in a mirror in those who are now gathered around him. Oh, what a picture of glory and splendor. Here we have the saints made perfect. 
But the attention is not on those doing the admiring. The attention is not on those doing the reflecting, but all of the attention is on the one being admired. All of the attention is on Christ himself. On the one whose glory is being reflected. Oh, don't leave this house this evening with anything in your mind other than this Christ. Here's the second Adam. The crucified. The risen. The ascended. The reigning. The glorious Savior. The one who has perfected salvation. This then as it was with those believers in Thessalonica, so it is with us, us today. This is the doctrine. This is the doctrine that makes our affliction here in this life for the children of God but a light affliction. This truth is the highest joy that we can ever attain to here below. Everything else is misery in comparison to the splendor that we will reflect when we are gathered around Christ in all of his revealed glory in that final day. When we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. This is a rest. This is the rest. For the people of God. The rest that we will finally enter into. That eternal Sabbath. A rest from our labours. A rest from the sadness. From the trial. From the persecution. A rest from your own battles with indwelling sin. A rest in that perfect salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. But for the sinner, this, friends, this is the rest that you forfeit, that you jeopardize, so long as you remain outside of Christ. While you reject his free grace, there is no prospect of eternal bliss for you. Our plea then tonight is not that you would simply be terrified by eternal destruction to come. Oh, our plea, sinner, tonight is this, that you would see Jesus Christ, the saviour of the sinner, see him in all his glory. Oh, that God would reveal him to your soul. Oh, that the Spirit would awaken you to your needs. And you would apprehend him by faith as your substitute. So that you too, gathered here in our midst, outside of Christ, that you too in that day, in that day that you would have this perfected salvation. May God write his word on our hearts. Let's stand for prayer. Our gracious God and eternal heavenly Father, we thank thee for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee, O Lord, for these things that we have seen from the person and the work of Christ, these little glimpses that thou hast shown to us from thy word, we thank thee for them, we treasure them. But, O Lord, how we pray that thou would write these words in the heart of every one that hears them. That there would be a sanctifying of thy people here below. That there would be a building up of the church of Christ, that the body of Christ would be edified that they would be strengthened in their faith, that they would be emboldened to go on in their walk here below, that the narrow way would be the way of glory and splendor to them as they see thee in faith. Oh, that the broad way to them would be a thing of shame, a thing that repels them. And, O oh Lord, that thy people would be so encouraged, 
Oh, that they would be built up. That their hearts would melt as they hear the gospel preached. That they would be revived in their souls. That their prayer lives would be rejuvenated. That their hearts would be soft and tender when they think of those around them who are perishing in their sins. That their faith in thy word would be strengthened. That their times of devotion unto thee would be made as little times of heaven on earth. But O Lord, for those that are outside of Christ, for those who remain Christ rejectors even tonight, O Lord, have mercy on them, we pray. Bring them to see, Lord, not the terrors of hell. Oh, we pray they would never see such things, but bring them to see the splendor of the Savior of sinners. Show them with the eye of faith, with that regenerating work of thy Spirit. Show them the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue with us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we conclude this evening with Psalm 89 again, uh, singing from verse 14 this time. Psalm 89, <coughs> singing from verse 14 to verse 18. And after we've sung this psalm, I could ask our brother. Uh, Stuart Farms to give the benediction. Psalm 89, singing from verse 14. Justice and judgment of thy throne are made the dwelling place. Mercy accompanied with truth shall go before thy face. O greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. In brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in the name Shall in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly, and in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high. Because the glory of their strength doth only stand in thee, and in their favour shall our horn and power exalted be. For our God is our defence, and he to us doth safety bring. The Holy One of Israel is our Almighty King singing these verses to God's praise. Justice and judgment of thy throne
farms. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, with you all. Amen. Amen.